0: Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where nine people have up to ten minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. Started by Potter Gautuma and me, Paul Doran, in Belfast in 2011. And this is the 10x9 podcast. We've two stories in this week's podcast, one from our Zoom days and one from a recent Black Box event in front of a live audience. So let's get stuck in. First up is Fiona Malloy, and she told her story via Zoom in April when the thing was scars. I hope you're not too squeamish.
1: I'm proud to say I've never broke a bone in my life and have spent no time whatsoever in hospital, except for the time spent bringing five wonderful children into this world. And this is how I gained my battle scars. There are no other scars that can be worn with quite as much pride as the C-section scar. Yes, indeed, my last two were airlifted to safety through the hatch rather than taking the perilous journey down the birth canal that the other three took. I have to say, I always find it hilarious. At least it gives me a cynical type of laugh when people say all sweet and sickly like, was it a normal delivery then? As if such a thing exists. Just because something happens often doesn't make it normal. And believe me, there's nothing that feels normal about that carry on. I have a few examples, just in case you're in any doubt. With number one, it was Christmas Eve, 1992. And there's me lying, legs akimbo, up in stirrups, busting the blood vessels in my face, pushing. And there's two nurses talking casually, like, over the top of my legs about the price of Brussels sprouts. I'd been pushing for two hours and he wasn't moving, each contraction just pushing the wee head harder into that area that wasn't seemingly getting any bigger to let it out. In walks a wee small man in a spotty bow tie and he was carrying what looked like a pair of pliers, only about five times the size. I'm going to spare you most of the details because I think you can guess. Suffice to say I was in Dungannon, but I could probably be heard in Cookstown. I actually thought I had died and gone to hell and the devil was torturing me for my sins. Couldn't believe it when I opened my eyes and I was still alive. Apparently the nosy wee runt was face up and had to be turned and pulled out for his own good. Number two was a slow labour, i.e. two days and no sign. They were talking about moving things on a bit, subtext for legal torture with a drip up. Well... Things got so bad, I tried to escape from the labour ward. So crazed was I that I thought I could run away from what was inside me. God love me. When the pushing bit came, I literally couldn't open my eyes and there was this unhelpful midwife shouting at me, Fiona, you're going to have this baby, as if I had any choice. I spat out with vitriol, have you got any then? Because I figured I knew the answer. When I got the expected response, I politely asked her to be removed from the labour ward and replaced with a more sympathetic midwife. This baby was a big one, and she didn't come out in one or two pushes. Oh no, she stopped for a rest just around about her ears. This helped me no end, like, and once more, I thought I would die. When she made an appearance, I really didn't care if I'd had a litter of puppies. Don't think I spoke for three days after that one. And I'm quite sure the patching up that needed done down there, that there's scars, but I've never looked. I'm going to skip the middle child, and work we always skipped, let's face it, to get on to those for whom that I bear the scars that I can see. With number four, 29 weeks in, I went for a routine checkup and was told I wouldn't be going home. I had what was known as placenta previa, which is more or less what it says on the tin, if you know your Latin-like. I was stuck in Anthromeria Hospital for eight weeks with no hope of reprieve, except for a Sunday visit to Junction One every week, where I ripped the arse clean out of it in terms of getting all that I wanted from whoever had come to visit me on that particular Sunday. The wait for this one was hard going, and they told me he wasn't coming out the normal route, as it would be too dangerous. I'd been told not to wander too far from the bed, But try I did laps of the hospital, trying to speed things up a bit. When the fateful day came, I was put to sleep. And when I woke up, there he was, the Angel Gabriel, all five pound, 14 ounces of him. And I just had my first scar. It wasn't that it was pretty or anything, but I couldn't stop looking at it. It did amaze me that he had been safely delivered into this world from such a small window. I have to say, I wore it with pride. I figured that it was the only scar of its kind that I would ever have. That was until, at the ripe old age of 41, the little surprise made his way into being, and it became clear that he would probably be making his way into the world by the same route. I was somewhat apprehensive about this, as I wasn't to be afforded the luxury of being put to sleep for the situation. Oh no, this was to be a waking affair, and I didn't like the idea of them going in on the same spot to hook him out. But apparently this was to be for my benefit. Anyhow, as I was wheeled down to the operating theatre, the surgeon says to me, it says here in your chart that you want something a bit more permanent sorted while I'm in there. Are you sure? I think I lolled at that. I mean, how sure does a body need to be like with five children at the age of 41? So the scar was widened a bit for this wee man's fatter head to emerge and all I could feel was this pulling and hauling that they do when they're at this sort of thing. So much pulling and hauling and they're not a bit gentle. Like, I really wasn't sure what was going to be produced and finally they held him up over the screen and him yapping his wee head off, I think I've told you this before, Liam says he came out gurning and he hasn't stopped since. So there you go, all the one scar and two great reasons to have it. The extension didn't look as good as the original, mind you, and the healing process took a bit longer. But who was I to complain with another perfectly healthy little addition to the family? It seems to me that nature has done some job in ensuring that all these love hormones course through us in the wake of such experiences. Otherwise, the human race would probably have died out by now, and there's no way I'd be the mother of five. However, I'm still the best ambassador there is for having children, or so I'm told. So if any of us are hanging about or thinking or hanging in the balance and thinking that a cat might do you, catch yourselves on and just get on with it.
0: Thanks very much, Fiona. What a magnificent um, journey through um, five births. Dear God. Amazing. Um, I should tell you that two of your children, I think um, Georgia and Conlith are in the chat and they were giving live action reactions from the point of view of the children saying no what's she doing is it isn't about us we are
1: the children of the scars
0: and then they made a joke about it they made a joke about your poor Edon, the middle child being skipped oh, yeah. over god help them.
1: Right. i know that was the easiest one though i have to say um yeah i got the oh, epidural right. and the whole thing so uh it was all sorted <laughs> all sorted
0: <laughs> what would i know yeah i hurt my finger once that was sore yeah. okay, <laughs> men good. don't know anything Oh thanks indeed Fiona. Like Podrig, I too have suffered great pain. A pair of shoes gave me a blister once, but I persevered. And you can watch Fiona telling that story on our YouTube channel. Most of our Zoom stories are there. Okay, back to the black box and the live audience. It was October and the theme was shock. Here's Jane Searle.
2: 25 years ago this week I rang the Samaritans. It was October 1996 and I was living in Bradford, West Yorkshire, with my husband and two little girls. David was actually away in Japan with his work, and so I was home alone on a wet and stormy night with just the children, asleep upstairs, and the cat for company. It was the middle of the night, and I couldn't sleep. Not that I'm suggesting for one second that it is acceptable to just phone the Samaritans when insomnia hits, If that were the case, I would have a permanent line to them these days at my age. No, it was a different kind of not being able to sleep that made me dial the number. His name was James, the Samaritan. He sounded in his mid-40s, but it's sort of hard to tell over the phone. I'm not even sure James was his real name, but it isn't important. Hi, I blurted out, my name's Jane, I'm sorry to phone and I'm sure you have other people who need you more than me. I'm not suicidal or anything, I just can't sleep and I'm on my own. Poor James, I thought to myself. He was probably hoping for a quiet night and then he gets me, a babbling sleepless wreck. It's fine, he replied calmly. Would you like to talk? I'm a good listener. That was it. That was what I wanted, to talk, and so I began. Last year, James, I had a really bad breakdown. It started with my not sleeping, but quickly became not eating, not wanting to go out, not really caring whether I lived or died. It made no sense, and it took me a good while to come through it, and, well, it's left me feeling quite fragile one of the things that i have learned from it all is to listen to my emotions and not let them get ahead of me if you understand what i'm saying is that i realized that speaking about how i was feeling helped stop my runaway brain train from hurtling me into darkness tonight i started to feel everything speed up I'm going over and over stuff in my head. I feel anxious and I'm scared that if I don't share how I'm feeling with someone, then I will get ill again. My doctor says feelings have a way of making themselves heard and not always in a good, healthy way. James spoke. What would you like to talk about, Jane? Once more, I blurted it out. My dad, if that's okay. You see, he's in hospital in Ireland. He's actually dying of lung cancer, although he hasn't smoked for years. When we were little, my younger sister and I got him to blow into a white hanky to show him just how much dirt and ash was in his breath. It gave him a terrible shock, and he gave up the cigarettes after that. Seemingly, lung cancer can hit anybody. The hospital are letting him go home tomorrow. They think he'll live for a few more months, and he's still in reasonable form. I fly over as often as I can to see him, although it's tricky with one of the children in school. My sisters and I share his care. Last visit, he said, what would I do without you, my wonderful girls? And I said, don't worry, Dad, when you're gone, we're going to use your money to go on a cruise. We're all going to get gold sandals and pashminas and learn to dance the cha-cha-cha in the ballroom. We were changing his nebulizer at the time, but he managed a laugh. Is it okay to keep going, James? Do you need to answer anybody else's call? James replied, this is your time to talk, Jane. There are other lines for other people. Anyway, it's quiet tonight. He paused. Are you worried about losing him? Ah, I thought to myself, James has done all the right training. I am, I replied. I mean, I'll be an orphan at 34. My mum died when I was 21, and dad and I have been trying to get to know each other properly since then. Mum was always the person to go to with emotions. Dad was stricter, less approachable, and usually busy with his work. It was always the threat of him being cross that got us to behave. I don't believe he ever smacked me. We always knew he loved us, although mummy did the sloppy stuff. Every Saturday night, he would come home with the paper and a couple of bags of Rolos and Toffees and we would watch match of the day. He never stopped trying to explain the offside rule to my younger sister and me. She got it and still regularly goes to games. I never did, although I do still enjoy trying to work it out. And on a Sunday he always made the breakfast. Overcooked scrambled eggs. We would be woken to the sound of him scraping the burnt bits off the toast into the sink. This would be followed by the noise of him trying to scrub the saucepan and to give up and fill it with water to soak. My poor mum usually had to face it on Monday morning. Then before church, he would shine his shoes. It was a ritual. He took out the box from the cupboard under the stairs and sitting on a chair in the kitchen, he would carefully use an old cloth to apply the black polish. Then he would brush the soft leather with sweeping movements, each one making its own special sound as it buffed and polished to perfection. He's only wearing slippers these days. I'm really going to miss him. I mean, I'll be nobody's child when he's gone. We are all always somebody's child, Jane, James spoke up. Whether they are with us or not, we will always be somebody's child. James was good. What will you miss the most, he asked. I thought for a moment. His hands, I replied. I love his hands. They are big and weathered. In the wintertime, he gets hacks on his knuckles, and so he rubs them with vaseline. Recently, he has discovered some special Icelandic Icelandic cream that he swears by. Whether rough or smooth, I love his hands. And I'll miss the way he gives everyone a nickname, always longer than their proper name, never shorter. My younger sister is Emmalina Margaret, instead of just Emma. The woman next door is Maisie Toosie. Mr Tilson, his friend, is Tilsonicus and my littlest daughter is potato famine girl because she loves long skirts and to run around in her bare feet. I stopped talking and looked over at the clock. It was 3.30am. I had been talking to James for over half an hour, and I felt better, less anxious, less afraid of what lay ahead. Thank you, James, I said. I can let you go now. I think I'm actually ready to sleep. Thank you for listening. You're welcome, he replied. The next morning, at 7.30, I rang the Samaritans a second time. James answered. He was still on his shift. He's gone, James, I said quietly. My dad's gone. My sister rang there now to say he had died in his sleep. The nurse went to check on him in the middle of the night and he had died peacefully. She said it was a bit of a shock because they weren't expecting it. The night before, he had drank a cup of tea and watched Match of the Day before she had settled him down with his tablets. He really loved his football. I'm so sorry, Jane, James replied. How are you feeling? The thing is, James, I answered, it wasn't a shock to me. I mean, I did think I might see him again, but this morning when I got the news, I just felt calm, prepared, peaceful. I'm not in a state. I will call David's work and get them to arrange his flight home, and I am ready to organize plans for the girls and me. My chat with you last night helped me talk it through. I wanted to ring you back to say thank you. You've really been a good Samaritan.
0: Thanks so much, Jane. Always a joy to hear your stories and what a wonderfully touching and frank story that was. And that is it this week from the 10x9 podcast. We love 10x9 and always will, but if you can help us to keep it going through the next while, then you can donate monthly via Patreon or make a one-off donation at PayPal. There are links at the website 10x9.com, but we are just grateful to have you along. I'm Paul Dorn, and I'll be back with the next podcast soon. For now, bye-bye.